everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. And today we're beginning a new series called Understanding the Book of Revelation. Revelation teaches that there's a blessing in reading and responding to its message. But for many, the book is either filled with codes or confusion. And we miss Revelation's own focus on Jesus and his call to faithfulness as a result. Today, I'd like to look with you at three principles that the book of Revelation gives for rightly interpreting it. These will help us as we look at some of the tougher passages in the book later on in the series. Before we do that, I wanted to show you something. This stack of letters here is almost 30 years old. There's some of the letters that my wife Jennifer wrote to me when I first went to Japan. Alone in a rural, isolated part of the country, I struggled with language, culture, and connecting. But it was before WhatsApp or Zoom or even email. So we wrote letters. These letters were my lifeline to someone I love, and they gave me strength and comfort and encouragement until we were reunited again 10 months later. While they remain very meaningful to me, they'd be a little confusing for you to read. To understand them, you'd have to know something about our relationship and what was going on in our lives. If you did, these letters might give you hope and encouragement as well. When we read the book of Revelation, we often forget who it's written to and why. Instead of seeing it through the lens of its original readers, we try to interpret it in light of any current events that are significant to us. So for instance, when credit cards or barcodes or even social insurance numbers were first introduced, many Christians were convinced they were somehow connected with the mark of the beast. But how can we know? Today, I wanna to give you principles to guide these questions. Three keys to interpreting the book of Revelation. And they're found right in the opening verses of the book. So let's turn there now. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 1, verses 1 to 8. If you don't have a Bible, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on, the, on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of God. So we're looking at three keys for interpreting the book of Revelation. The first is this, understand that it was written to Christians threatened with persecution and compromise. We need to hear the message to them before guessing the message for ourselves. 
That means we try to put ourselves in the shoes of John and the churches who first received this revelation as we read it. Understand that it's written to Christians threatened with persecution and compromise. Now, verse 1 gives us the address line of the book. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. If you trace the line then, God the Father gave this revelation to Jesus, Jesus made it known to angels, and they delivered it to John. Then in verse 4, we see that John is writing to what he, uh, what he saw to the seven churches in Asia. And that's not our continent of Asia now, but uh, Asia Minor, which is in modern Turkey. Many people bypass this portion alt altogether. It's like they picked up the letters that Jennifer wrote to me in Japan and read them without knowing anything about me or the circumstances in which they were written. I know that because one of the most popular ways of interpreting Revelation in North America in the last century said that most of the book, in fact, all of chapters 4 to 18, refer to a seven-year period of time at the end of history when they believe none of us will be present. When you hear who this letter was written to, that becomes very hard to believe. So, who was it written to? It was initially re re revealed to John. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. We know him from the gospel he wrote in the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But he's an old man by this time. Most people believe that John received this revelation in AD 95 or 96, toward the end of Emperor Domitian's reign. Domitian insisted on being called our Lord and God, and under his rule, Christians were facing pressure to participate in Roman religious practices, including the worship of the emperor himself. In verse 9, we're told that John was on the island of Patmos. He had been exiled there because of his witness to Jesus Christ. Imagine being 80 or 90 years old and the emperor thinks that you are such a threat to the, that he has to imprison you on an island. Tribulation wasn't an abstract concept for John, nor was it for the churches to whom this letter was sent. False prophets were bombarding them with lies and deception. So, for example, when he writes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.2, he says this, you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. The churches are constantly having to guard themselves against false teaching. Some were careful to discern it, while others were compromising with the truth in the name of tolerance. In Revelation 2.14, for instance, some in the church in Pergamum are rebuked for holding to the teaching of Balaam. Then a few verses later, in verse 20, the church is warned against tolerating a woman he calls Jezebel, who's claiming to be a prophetess and leading others into sin and compromise. So false prophets were a major threat to the churches to which John wrote. So we're not going to be surprised later in the book to hear him talking about false prophets. But in addition to dealing with false prophets, the church was beginning to feel the painful persecution. In Revelation 2.9, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. They were already beginning to pay a price for their faith. 
economically, they were being shut out of various professional associations and the government officials were treating them as disloyal and dangerous. He warns those in Smyrna that imprisonment is around the corner. And he mentions that in Pergamum, a man named Antipas was killed for his faithful witness. When you see who this revelation was originally given to, you realize they were facing the very things which will become the major themes of the rest of the book. False prophets, tribulation, economic hardship, and the challenge to remain faithful, avoid compromise, and witness to the truth in the midst of it. If we're going to read the book properly, we need to first read it through their eyes. And none of them would have thought, this revelation is very confusing. It must be talking about some future period a couple thousand years from now when the UN is formed and they introduce barcodes and so social insurance numbers. So the first key to reading Revelation is to understand it's written to Christians threatened with persecution and compromise. And so we need to hear the message to them before guessing the message for ourselves. That key is right in the text, but so is the next one. To rightly read Revelation, we need to understand that it's written with symbols set in the past, addressed to the present, and speaking to the future. Let me break that down for you. And let me start with the biblical and historical symbolism, because it's literally on every page of the book. Verse 1 calls uh, this book the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus has given us a revelation, and that word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse. The word itself just means revealing or unveiling. But it described a form of writing that was extremely popular during this time. Apocalyptic writing described visions with vivid imagery and symbols. But even if you didn't know that, Revelation itself teaches you to expect lots of biblical and historical symbolism. Right in the first chapter, Jesus is pictured standing among seven golden lampstands and holding seven stars. And then we're told it's not to be understood literally. He tells us the seven stars are seven angels. The seven lampstands are seven churches. And this happens throughout the book. We're told that the golden bowls represent the prayers of God's people. The two olive trees are also two lampstands and two witnesses. The seven heads of the beast represent seven kings. And the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Again, we're told all of these things. And the conclusion we're supposed to draw is that Revelation gets its message across with imagery. And that imagery is found either in the Bible or in the experience of the first century readers. Despite that, people will accuse you of compromising scripture if you suggest that something is a symbol and not to be taken literally. Even Jesus' name, it's only used 12 times in the book of Revelation while he's called the Lamb 29 times. The symbols in Revelation are everywhere. But they aren't like riddles or codes. The imagery is like art. It makes us feel something. It's more descriptive, but in a different way. And similarly, Revelation, Revelation teaches us to see numbers symbolically. I want to show you something. Verse 4, four reads like this. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Do you know how many churches there were in Asia Minor when John wrote this? A lot more than seven. 
In fact, significant churches like the one in Colossae weren't even included. Do you know why only seven churches are? Because seven represented fullness or completeness. When you get to the seventh day, the week is over. So the seven churches in Revelation are a full number of churches, and they represent all the others. That's the same reason we see seven blessings mentioned in Revelation, and seven angels, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven heads, seven plagues, and seven bowls of wrath. In fact, you don't see any random numbers in Revelation. <laughs> there aren't 46 or 152 of anything. And so we're supposed to read the numbers symbolically. Now that we've talked about the symbolism, I need to touch on timing. Verse 1 presents a problem, and I'll read it for you again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The problem is this. If revelation describes the things that must soon take place, how soon must they take place? That's actually a very difficult question that people have been struggling to uh, agree on for the last 2,000 years. And the answer isn't at all simple. Let me share three ways that the church has tried to answer that question and then describe what the consensus is today. The first approach is called the Preterist view. And it says that almost everything described in the book of Revelation, except for Christ's return, of course, already happened in the first century. For some of you, that may sound really far-fetched. Until you start lining up various historical events with what's described symbolically in Revelation. And there's actually incredible correspondence. It was easier to believe, though, when people thought that Revelation was written during the reign of Nero in the mid-60s and leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now it's believed that Revelation was written well after that, in AD 95. So it would be odd to say, these are the things that must soon take place, and then describe things that had already happened. At the other end of the spectrum is the futurist view. It's been popularized by the Left Behind series. It sees the things that must soon take place as all referring to events in a seven-year period at the end of history, just prior to the return of Christ. The biggest problem with this is that it makes the book of Revelation almost completely irrelevant to the people it was originally written to. In between those two, uh, those two is a historical view, which says each of the visions in the book describes symbolically some historical event from the first century until the return of Christ. The problem with that is that every generation comes up with a different, different identification of the individuals and the events. Today, most scholars take a kind of middle ground that borrows from each of these views but doesn't accept any of them. So, for instance, with the preterists, they recognize that many of the visions described in Revelation seem to be patterned after the events that did take place in the first century. It's like if Jesus were giving us a vision of what was to come today. He might describe it in terms that were still fresh in our memory, like 9-11, the Arab Spring, and the 2011 earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Most scholars today don't try to identify each person and event in Revelation with a specific moment in history. 
but they do see them as symbolic descriptions of what is happening throughout this period from when John received the vision until Christ's return. But nobody says that that's all that's going to happen. It doesn't rule out the fact that the kind of events described in Revelation will likely intensify as the end draws near. So in that sense, Revelation describes the struggle of every generation. But as Jesus' return draws near, it will only escalate. It's like what John described in 1 John 2, 18. That's where he said, Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. He's saying, we're on the edge of Christ's return. An Antichrist is coming. But many Antichrists have already come. In other words, there have already been many powerful figures who sought to oppose Jesus and his church. But there's a final figure who's still to come. It may very well be that's the best way to think of the visions in Revelation as well. They speak to every generation's struggle, but they warn of an even greater day to come. So when we read Revelation, understand it's written with symbols set in the past, addressed to the present, and speaking to the future. Now, we covered a lot of ground with the first two keys, and I realize I may have lost some of you. If so, I need you to check back in now. Because the final key to interpreting the book of Revelation is the least controversial, but also the least followed. With the book of Revelation, you need to understand that there's a blessing in following the Lamb. You get that blessing through reading, not arguing. You get that blessing through obedience, not curiosity. And you get that blessing by understanding who, not trying to figure out when. There's a blessing in following the Lamb. Verse 3 simply says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. When this was written, just 15% of the general population was literate. Jewish families had higher literacy because they, they put a high value on reading God's word and teaching their children to do so. Today, our reading levels seem to be going backward, not forward. We don't like to read. We, pre, we prefer our food pre-chewed. Hear me when I say there's a blessing in reading the scriptures for yourself. There's a blessing in reading the book of Revelation for yourself. The blessing doesn't just come in hearing sermons about it or listening to podcasts about it. God gives teachers to the church, but he wants to speak to you through his word. He wants you to be able to handle the sword of the spirit for yourself. So read the book, listen to the book, and do what it says. It says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. People like to treat the book of Revelation like a puzzle to be solved or an abstract mural to stare at. But it's filled with simple challenges to obedience, faithfulness, discernment, courage, and witness. And the blessing comes in accepting the challenges. The blessing comes in following the Lamb. So let me give you a challenge as we approach this series. At some point, you'll probably disagree with me over some aspect of interpreting the book. In fact, maybe you already have. People have been struggling with the details of Revelation for 2,000 years, so don't get stressed out if you don't agree. 
But what I want you to do is this. Take the energy that you would exert in arguing or trying to convince me or anyone else that you're right and pour that into doing what this book challenges all of us to do, which is to live a life of faithfulness in the midst of hardship. That way, you'll get the blessing whether you're right or not. The other thing I'd say, though, is to keep looking for Jesus in the text. This is his story. And so the blessing comes in understanding who, not figuring out when. Don't let dates and details keep you from the Savior at the center of this book. Verse 5 calls him the faithful witness. He's the one who brought us the message of hope when he faced tribulation. Later in that verse, he's called the firstborn of the dead. When you remember Jesus' victory over death and resurrection, it gives you courage when circumstances threaten you with loss. Jesus is called uh, the ruler of the king, kings on earth. When John was in exile in Patmos and the churches in Asia Minor were feeling the power of Rome, it seemed like Domitian was all-powerful. And today we can be tempted to feel like our lives are under the control of politicians and pandemics. There's a blessing in hearing God remind you that Jesus rules. In verse 8, he declares, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is the beginning and the end and everything in between. He's with us now and he's been here before. He goes before us and he'll never leave us. Now, when I sent letters to to Jennifer from Japan, she said that she'd always read them at least twice. The first time she said she skimmed through until she found the parts where I told her how much I loved her. And the second time she'd read the whole letter. I think Revelation needs to be read the same way. Skim until you get to Jesus and then go back and read the rest of the chapter. Because whether you're in exile on a remote island or dealing with tribulation, temptation, trials, fears, or threats, what you most need is Jesus. Your charts won't help you. Your arguments won't save you. You need a savior who's been there. You need a redeemer who cares. You need the one who will ride forth in victory. Verse 5 calls him, him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's who you need. And he's at the center of every page of this book, and he's inviting you to follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a, a revelation of the things to come. We thank you that you care to meet us in the pain and struggle of this life. Thank you that you prepare us for the trials that we face and you minister to us in them. And as much as we thank you, Father, for the principles and the warnings, we thank you most of all for Jesus Christ because we know that he is with us in the trial. We know that he stands with us. He goes before us in victory. So help us to cling to him. Help us to lean into him in faithfulness. Help us not to give way to compromise. 
but strengthened by him, filled with the spirit that you give. May we follow the lamb wherever he goes. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has given you a better idea of how to interpret the book of Revelation. And more than that, I hope it's given you a hunger for the blessing that this book promises in following the Lamb, no matter what comes. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.